Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning we are going to conclude our conversations about the book of Genesis known in Hebrew as Bereshit. The Torah portion is called Vayachi, which translates, and he lived, but interestingly enough, is about the final uh, parts of Jacob's life. In this parasha, which covers Genesis 47, verse 28, through Genesis 50, verse 26, Jacob and all his sons and their families are now settled in Egypt with Joseph, who is the second most powerful man in the Pharaoh's kingdom. The text tells us that Joseph lived in Egypt for 17 years, and he was 147 years old. Jacob, also called Israel in the Torah, said to Joseph, If I have found favor in your eyes, then swear to me that you will not bury me in Egypt, but with my fathers in Canaan. Joseph agreed, and then later received word that his father was dying. Joseph took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see Jacob. Jacob on his deathbed sat up, saying, God the all-suffering appeared to me in the land of Canaan and blessed me. God said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will let you become a community of nations and will give this land to your seed after you as an everlasting possession. Then Jacob added, Now bring me your sons to me so that I may bless them. Your two sons, born before I came to Egypt, shall belong to me like Reuben and Simeon, referring to Jacob's sons, but the children whom you begot after them shall remain yours. Joseph could not see, Jacob could not see, so Joseph brought his sons close enough so that his fathers could embrace them. Jacob said to Joseph, I had not thought it possible that I would see your face, and now God has let me see even your own sons. Joseph had his sons kneel before Jacob. Ephraim was to Jacob's left and Manasseh to Jacob's right. Jacob then stretched out his right hand and placed it on Manasseh's head, Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head. He guided his hands deliberately, for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac conducted themselves, the God who has been my shepherd for my existence until this day, the angel who has delivered me from all evil, bless these children so that my name and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, may be called in them, that they may multiply like fish in the midst of the earth." When Joseph saw that his father placed his right hand upon Ephraim's head, he moved it to Manasseh's. He said, No, father, this is the firstborn. Place your right hand upon it. Jacob refused. I know it, my son. He too will become a tribe. He too will be great. But his younger brother will be greater than he, and his seed will complete the nations. He blessed them on that day, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. He put Ephraim before Manasseh. 
Later, Jacob gathered his sons and offered them blessings, a long series of blessings. All of the sons would go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. After he had blessed them and acknowledged their lineage to him, Jacob commanded them to bury him in the cave of Machpelah, in the land of Canaan, where his ancestors, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah, were buried. Jacob then dies at the end of the parasha and is, as the text says, gathered to his people. Joseph commanded his servants and physicians to embalm his father. It took 40 days for embalming. The Egyptians wet for 70 days. Then, with Pharaoh's permission, Joseph went to all his servants and elders to bury his father. When they came to Bramble Bond beyond the Jordan, they held a very great and impressive lamentation with a seven-day mourning period. The sons buried Jacob as he was requested. Joseph lived in Egypt with his brothers and saw the third generation of Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph said to his brothers, I am dying, and God will surely remember you again one day and bring you up from this land which God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Jacob made his brothers swear, if God will remember you again one day, Then you shall bring my bones up from this place. Joseph died at 110 years and they embalmed him. Then he was placed in a coffin in Egypt in accordance with his wishes. The parasha ends and prepares us for the well-known story of the Exodus. With me this morning to discuss this parasha is Rabbi Norman M. Cohn, the Rabbi Emeritus of Beth Shalom Congregation in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Rabbi Cohn is a classmate of mine from seminary, and in fact, we often played uh, baseball together on the seminary team. He's the author of a number of books concerning biblical commentary and biblical exegesis, and it's a pleasure to have Rabbi Norman M. Cohn with me this morning. Uh, Rabbi Cohn, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Well, thank you, uh, Rabbi Garden. It's it's a pleasure to be back and uh, looking forward to discussing the Torah portion with you this week. Well, it's certainly an interesting conclusion to the book of Genesis, which begins with the creation of the world. Um, And the Torah portion, as already mentioned to the audience, is Vayachi, Vayachi, which means, and he lived, but the primary focus of the Torah portion is the death of uh, Jacob slash Israel and Joseph. And I'm wondering, what are your uh, thoughts about that paradox between calling a portion and he lived and then focusing on the death? Uh, And we see this earlier in Genesis where we have the Torah portion named Chaye Sarah, which says um, this is the life of Sarah, and within a few short verses, she too dies. So what are your initial thoughts about that? Well, I think it's a great window into um, uh, a biblical and a Jewish view of uh, life and death and their relationship. Uh, there's one more portion that's going to come at the end of 
Deuteronomy, it's called Vizot Habracha. It's when Moses is dying, and the portion again focuses on Vizot Habracha. This is the blessing, and it's all about right. Moses blessing uh, the people of Israel before he dies, just as we saw in this portion. Um, Jacob blessing not only his children, but begins with two of his grandchildren, who he makes them into children. This is a great um, image for us because it talks about life going on, and and uh, as we approach death, it's not something necessary to fear, but it's a time when we really look back and we see what our life amounts to. I, I, I love the fact that, it's, and he lived, because, uh, you know, at a, at a funeral, that's what we do when we do eulogies, and you have done so many during your career and me during mine. Uh, we talk about a person's life, and at the end of a person's life, it's a lot easier to talk about his accomplishments and who he is or she is than uh, when they're first born, where we celebrate. And there's a wonderful tradition. I know the story exists in many different people's uh, treasuries, but in ours, the, the, the tradition of the two ships. You know, one ship is going off and departing, and we've been there at the pier. Everyone's celebrating. You know, they, they break a bottle over the hull of the ship, and people are excited that the ship's going off on its journey. And uh, not too far away, another port, ships are coming in, and no one's paying much attention to them. And yet, um, those ships have completed their journey and successfully brought their cargo from one place to the other. And uh, we should uh, look at that and say, aha, this is something to be grateful for. And I think that's what our tradition is saying, that at the time we get close to death, you know, put things in order. Have a, an ethical will. Let people know what's important to you and that they're now the your legacy. I, I, I love so, this. So day. let's follow up yeah. that notion of an ethical will for a moment and then return to this notion of beginnings at the end, because that seems to be one of the essential questions that the Torah portion is saying. But you raise the issue of ethical wills, which is something that Jewish tradition has uh, written about and promoted and has its origins in the Torah. Um, as uh, patriarchs are dying, they bless their descendants and they uh, pass on to them some statement of what their values have been and what they hope the children's values will be. Um, and um, there was an intentionality, as you well know, that we focus more on this concept of what we are leaving to our descendants as a uh, legacy of how we lived rather than the financial legacy. Um, how do you teach that to the people that you've been working with for almost 50 years? Well, I, I think that you talk to them about what's important to them, and of course, this culture that we live in, and certainly in America, and I believe in uh, all of North America, does focus a lot on the material things. I mean, if you watch television commercials, you watch people talk about things, it's really the accumulation of their wealth and possessions, and they're so concerned about passing them on. And um, I think that focus needs to also be placed toward our values, because um, that's who we are. You know, we don't, we can't, you can't take it with you. <laughs> and um, that's been a theme in, in our culture as well. But today we're getting lost in, in this materialistic kind of stuff. And we, we need to focus on what's important in our life. And hopefully by the time we're close to death, we've really already passed that on in some way to our children. And if we live long enough to our grandchildren, 
that uh, this is what's important in life. And, and you're going to still have to learn the lessons, but I can tell you sort of what's, the, what's that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's getting there by living a good life and being a good person. And everything in our tradition points to that. You know, all Torah is about how do you deal with life? How do you deal with human nature? You know, it's, uh, human nature is, um, is to do things like we see in this Torah portion, if I could just go off for one second, this issue of primogeniture, you know, the firstborn has more rights, and uh, that's a natural thing. I, I don't know any couple, any family who's had kids that hasn't taken more photos and done more for the firstborn. By the time the second and third come around, there aren't as many pictures. And then it's this human nature thing, and I think our tradition recognizes, says, okay, that's human nature, but we don't have to give in to it. It's not, it's not right that we favor the oldest. And in this Torah portion, the blessing of the grandchildren, once again, um, Jacob places his hand, he crosses his hands over, because uh, Joseph naturally wants his oldest son, um, Manasseh, to have uh, more blessing. And of course, but, this this is the continuation of that theme that we see with uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and the theme of Jacob and Esau, that... Everyone in the ancient world knew of the responsibility of the firstborn to receive the birthright, but somehow the Torah seems to indicate, um, for many different reasons, of which you've touched on a few, that um, that's not necessarily the only way to proceed. Right? Uh, Look at our great heroes. You, you named some of them, Isaac and Jacob, and Joseph himself is not a firstborn. Right, he's and, uh, the youngest and, uh, until and, his younger and son. David. Right? And King David and Moses. Of all people, Moses is the, is the youngest of three. Right. And yet these, these are the people who really, um, you know, excel, and they show us the, you don't have to be that firstborn with all the privileges uh, uh, things are going on. And, and I think this is... Uh, Hey, this is important. I watched the news this week about what's going on with the royal family. I mean, this is this is a, a this is not just biblical. We still have repercussions of this idea today. And so, what do you think? So we read this Torah portion called Vayachi about the life of Jacob, and we uh, the narratives uh, focuses on Joseph, Jacob's deathbed. And um, on um, Joseph Beth dead, uh, deathbed, um, do you have a thought about why Jacob is uh, constantly referred to in this parasha at the end of his life as Jacob rather than an Israel? For earlier in the uh, narrative, of course, his name changes. Um, After his wrestling, right. Right, but here he continues to be called Jacob. And I'm just wondering if you have a thought. Um, you know, in chapter 49, it says, Jacob called his sons and said to them. So it's almost as if, um, well, what do you think it's almost as if? Well, you know, I think you, you, what you're suggesting, maybe I might be wrong, but I, I like what you're saying, and that is, you know, for a lot of his life, he had this uh, professional position. He was Israel. He was the leader of a group of people. And at the same time, he's also Jacob, a father and a grandfather. And I think a lot of people come to realize that while they may spend so much time doing their work, what really counts is 
family and those closest to us. And at the end of his life, he comes to return to that. In fact, what does he say? Jacob says, my God, I never thought I would see you again, Joseph, because they had been separated for all those years. But not only do I see you, but I get to see my grandchildren. I mean, what greater blessing can there be in life than to come full circle? So I think, Rabbi, what you're saying is, is a great suggestion. If he becomes Jacob again, and he realizes, and the hope is that we realize that before it's too late, that uh, that's what's important in life. These, this ethical will thing, by the way, was a very important tradition in Judaism in the Middle Ages. We find lots of uh, ethical wills that people left, and sort of letters to their kids. and uh, uh, Formal and today, letters I, to their kids, right? Not just incidental, but uh, attached to uh, whatever will regarding uh, material possessions. There would be a document that a parent or a grandparent had uh, carefully crafted uh, about their wishes, um, you know. Um, and, and you raise this very interesting point um, that I hadn't thought of until you just said it. Israel, the name Israel is really his professional name. This is how we identify him as the patriarch, as the person who um, will lead, um, leave a legacy. But in truth, the Torah portion says at this time when his life is ending, he's not a professional. He is a father and a grandfather, um, and he's looking back over his human life. Um, and what a great message the Torah seems to be saying for all of us, that when it comes to the end of our lives, it's not the role that we played external to our family or the positions we held in life that are truly important, but how we were known um, as a spouse a partner, a father, a grandfather, a human being. And those are representatives of who we were as human beings, not necessarily how successful we were. Uh, what, what a great thing to take from the Torah portion. Now, I want to make sure that in the time that's available to us, we just look at two other things. And one is both Jacob and Joseph want to be returned to the land of Canaan. Um, Jacob says he wants to be buried with his father and ancestor. Um, Joseph doesn't give such clear direction. And what do you, what have you come to realize um, is at the end of the book of Genesis is the importance of returning to the land for that burial? Uh, Steve, I think this is something that you and I were privileged to learn in rabbinical school with our revered professor, Hanan Brichto. And Rabbi Brichto um, had this wonderful theory called kin, cult, land, and afterlife, a biblical complex. And in it, he argues, and I think quite convincingly, that this is part of the beginning of the Jewish view of immortality and of afterlife, and that so much of it is linked with our uh, kin, our family, our kids, our children, um, cult, the religious practices that we do, land, the land that is part of our heritage, and afterlife. It comes from that. And I, I, I'm fond of saying to families at a funeral and afterwards, you are their immortality. You are this person's immortality because, go back to the name of the Torah portion, and he lived 
He lives in you. And we all know that because each of us has memories of our parents and grandparents and other relatives and other people, not necessarily related, who are our mentors, who gave us something that still is inside and has helped us to live. And we hopefully have given that to others. And I think that's the key. The afterlife is not just a rabbinic concept. A lot of people thought it didn't start until actually the first century or second century. Let, let me just clarify that for the listeners, that the concept of afterlife, as it appears in um, developing Christianity and in what Rabbi Cohn has called rabbinic Judaism, namely the um the faith and practices of the Israelite people after the destruction of the temple um, is somewhat a different development than that of the practices of the Torah. In the Torah, there's minimal, if any, mention of a notion of a physical concept of afterlife or even the ongoing life of the soul. It's only when the rabbinic world uh, begins to develop without the temple as a focus for sacrificial worship that these uh, concepts evolve from their origins, minimal though they may be, into something full-blown. And you're suggesting that the Torah especially in this Torah portion, but in other places, speak reminds us that afterlife is a function of memory. And and for Rabbi Bricto, I have to tell you, he, he argued much stronger that it was more than just memory. Um, I say that to people today because, you know, we can't prove afterlife, but we right. have a, a lot of notions of faith and belief in it. But Rabbi Bricto argues so many places in the Torah, and even the phrase, I want to be gathered to my ancestors. What does that mean? Um, and he talks about uh, our tradition talks about water being poured on the ground in in the, in, uh, in uh, the early times of the kings. In Samuel, talks about when we die, we're like water that in the, goes in the ground and it nourishes the land, and and that's a kind of afterlife as well. So our ancestors were thinking about afterlife long before. The rabbinic period, and I, I love your explanation of what the rabbinic period was. Yes, that, that's when sort of modern Judaism began at the same time that Christianity did, both as response right. to Parallelism. changes in the world. Right, right to the so, chaos. Yeah, yes, I yes. Think Rabbi Bricko argues quite convincingly, and he uses the Book of Ruth as well, because the Book of Ruth is all about getting that air and getting that land back and being returned to the soil. And I think that this idea is something that drives also um, modern Zionism the importance and centrality of the land of Israel to the people and faith of Israel. And um, and I think you, you, you hit on it right there. They said, and, 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 we want our bones to right. go back. And both of them make the same request. Take our bones back so we can be in our, in our land. And I suppose you intimate why burial is such a strong emotional attachment for the Jewish people. Though people, though some people clearly indicate they wish their bones to be transported back to Israel for burial, those who don't um, consider burial to be a greater choice um, for the end of life than um, cremation. Um, and cremation 
often leads to the spreading of the ashes as opposed to the interring of a um, into some sort of uh, container in a vault. Um, and that burial continues this notion of kin cult land and afterlife. Um, that's a really interesting connection for our listeners to try and understand when you meet Jewish people who are speaking about the end of life and so wish to make sure that they have an internment plot and they want to be um, interred with their ancestors, usually their parents and grandparents or their spouses or partners, and that they want to be interred in a Jewish cemetery, if it's at all possible, almost as if that Jewish cemetery is the embodiment of what uh, Joseph and Jacob were speaking about, returning to the land of our ancestors. We can't all go back to Israel for a number of reasons for burial, but we can be buried with, physically buried with our ancestors in our communities. Um, those are really interesting thoughts. The other thing I wanted to ask you just in the few, in the few minutes that are left to us is the Torah portion ends with an allusion to... Uh, slavery that's going to become full-blown um, with um, the beginning of the book of Exodus. Um, and why do you think the text wanted to give us with that foreshadowing? Well, I, I that's a, that's right, because it, I, the, thought, I, I mean, the brothers, right. the brothers bow low saying, yep. here we are your slaves. Yeah. And he's, well, they, and, and yes, Joseph they says, say that to Joseph, because correct. they're afraid, they're afraid he's going to come back after dad's dead and seek his revenge for earlier ah. on. And his message really comes back to the beginning of the creation story. He says, no, you may have intended ill will, but God made this happen for good. Look what's happened. We're reunited. We're, we're this united people, 12 different tribes. Now, that's a significant part of this story, too. 12 different tribes, 12 very diverse tribes becoming one people. And uh, in just another week, um, we're going to be in Egypt, and, and you know, enslaved. And uh, a pharaoh is going to arose who uh, knew not Joseph, you know? So, so I mean, I, th I think it's just interesting foreshadowing that the brothers use the word slavery, and Joseph says, don't be afraid because there is a, a divine plan. Um, and the plan uh, emerges out of um, God's desire that um, this nation will be kept alive and that this nation will survive, and that this nation will prosper. And then the very next week, next week, as we read in the Torah, uh, it says, a new Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. And we move on to a new direction. Um, Rabbi Norman Cohn has been my guest this morning on Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I want to thank Rabbi Cohn for a wonderful conversation about the Parasha Vayachi. You can listen to our show as a podcast on iTunes, Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, or on the CHRI website. 
For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and have a good day. Behold.